0: Hello, welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Todd Fink. I apologize for the delay here between episodes. I've been focusing more time and energy lately on completing my first book. It's a book of reflections, 108 to be exact, or poems, or writings, or passages, however you want to call them. And I'll be thrilled. To share all the details with you here on the podcast as they unfold. I've been writing them for more than a year throughout the pandemic and beyond, but I've been thinking about them for years before that. And I wasn't sure how they all fit together, but some friends wisely suggested that I print each one out separately so that I could hold them and bring them next to each other and walk around them, and that actually unlocked New creative channels in me, and I gradually started to see that the writings fit into 12 piles or chapters. And I now know what the names of those are, so I will share those with you here. Chapter one is called Now and Plunging, two, Dreammates and Ransacking, three, Sparks and Evoking, four, Polarity and steadying. 5. Community and building. 6. Maturity and healing. 7. Space-time and light-chasing. 8. Entropy and advancing. 9. Invincibility and witnessing. 10. Mythology and demystifying. 11. Solitude and integrating. And twelve, freedom and peeling. The book is about discovering unity in existence and meaning in our experiences. I found this little word in each chapter title, and, the word and, to be very powerful. In today's culture, we're conditioned to see everything in black and white, either or. So I like the power of this word and. You may have noticed that the first word is a noun and the second word is a verb. These are not necessarily opposites. These are just two ways of talking about the same thing. We could look at the sky and see a cloud. Perhaps it's a gray cloud. And it wouldn't be wrong to say there's a cloud in the sky. But there's also another way to understand it. If you look differently at the sky, you'll see that there's a process, that there's a movement. So I'm really excited about this book, and I'm not sure yet how it's going to be released. So if you know anybody in publishing, as I said before, or if you know a literary agent, feel free to send them my way. I do know that those of you who are supporting this work on Patreon, patreon.com slash kindmind. Everybody there, regardless of what tier you're in or when you joined, everybody will receive one of the first printed copies of this book, and I will include in your copy a personal thank you note to you. So I am always grateful uh, for your support there and I can't thank you enough. And at the same time, I humbly request those of you to consider joining who have not yet. And that will help me so much in being able to move this all forward. In fact, if we could even just get 50 more people to join, it would make a big difference in my ability to keep up with the backlog of episodes. And last month, there were nearly 20,000 listeners to the podcast. So this is a tiny, tiny fraction if we could encourage you to support within your means, if it's possible for you. And I thank you. A couple other perks for the, for the patrons. You may know that at the $10 a month tier, you have access to the Kind Mind Studio page of my website, which has the audio for guided meditations and other resources like wisdom stories and poems and a recommended reading list, which I recently added five more books to. I'll also be adding a few more meditations One will be about meditating to cope with uncertainty. One will be about loving kindness meditation. For those of you who are in the third tier, pledging $20 a month to support the podcast, you also have um, a monthly pass to any of the Kind Mind gatherings, and that will include those that are in person when that resumes. I'm looking to resume that soon. But if you miss that meeting in person or online, for any reason, you are welcome to send me a message via Patreon, and I can send you a private temporary link to view the recording of it, because I understand sometimes you can't uh, attend at the time when it's live, but I want you to have the full benefit of that tier on Patreon. And now this episode is called A Brief History of Fire. It's episode 54. is also very brief in terms of my podcast length. But that's because it was not recorded at one of our gatherings. It was recorded last November at Maureen Muldoon's Spiritual Speakeasy Community on Zoom. And the presentation's there are a little bit shorter, usually around 15 minutes or so with, with some conversation. I thought it fit very well with the themes we talk about here on this podcast, so I thank her for the invite to speak. And I will be returning again to Speakeasy Easy uh, this coming Sunday, June 6th, as well as the 13th and the 20th of this month, to do a series of talks called the Seahorse Series. It's about mending masculinity. And the seahorse is unique because the male seahorse carries the babies. In its pouch, so it's a reminder that this idea that masculinity is looks a certain way, or that being male needs to look a certain way, is not necessarily the case. That it's more of a construct, and we can study that construct and make sure we're using that construct in a harmonious way. So I hope to see you there, or at one of the upcoming Kind Mind gatherings, which always happens on the last Tuesday of the month. You can find more info on my website, michaeltodfink.com forward slash events. And before we dive into this episode, I'd like to point out a few mistakes that I made. I had mentioned multiple times that fire is not a noun, but an event. And that's not quite correct. Obviously, the word fire is a noun, and so is event. But what I meant was fire is not a thing. Fire is an event or a process. Or Fire is less like a noun and more like a verb. There is activity. There is a dynamic process unfolding. Also, I mentioned that there have been other massive wildfires in the modern era. But I said there's a fire in the 80s in China and Mongolia that was 20 acres in size. Obviously, that is not a massive fire. It was 20 million. I forgot to say million, but I make a lot of mistakes in all this talking that I do. When I catch it, I try to correct it so you can have a laugh when you hear that. Last thing I'd like to share with you is a specific reflection from the upcoming book about this episode. So many of these writings are actually concise versions of things we explore in the podcast. You could say that some of them are even the essence of some of these episodes, and this one certainly is. It's simply called Fire Ceremony. Fire is not a thing, but an event. Sitting around the dancing flames was probably like watching a movie in the ancient past. It still is. Working two sticks together to manifest fire is only possible because photosynthesis transformed light into chemical bonds to manifest a tree. So a bonfire is the tree's life in rapid reverse. Turning the mind upon itself also reveals a spark that burns up mental debris and warms and illuminates the whole being. Meditation is simply a fire ceremony, and each inhalation is an oblation, fuel for the inner fire. Like the outer ritual, it is also for world peace. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. When and how did humans discover fire? Well, it was a great turning point, obviously, in the evolution of our species. But it's probably not something that they had to really work hard to discover because fire existed forever on this planet in a few forms. Surely humans could see the sun and there was that fire in the sky. There was lightning and lightning often started fires on the ground and there was volcanoes the fire of lava the use of fire or the controlled use of fire by humans seems to date to 1 to 2 million years ago and there's a lot of agreement among scholars about that time and you can imagine how this changed things for human beings that ability to control fire to create fire would have given us light warmth protection from other species and then the ability to travel to be more nomadic and to venture into northern regions and farther south regions where the climates were harsher but if you could create fire you you could survive you could live longer you could make tools So, there's evidence of tools made by fire that date back as far as 800,000 years ago. This is also the time period where we see the first hearths emerging. There's a hearth in Israel that's 800,000 years old. And then the ancient Greeks learned to create fire with uh, glass or using different manipulations of sunlight. So 100,000 years or so ago, we we see more developments in fire. But I think it's interesting to note that along with all of these practical uses, being able to build a fire would probably have been the first cinema, like a type of entertainment. My first girlfriend growing up was a farmer's daughter in the rural part of Illinois that we grew up in and their family did not have a TV. But I always looked forward to visiting them because a fire was more than enough entertainment, fire and conversation. And if you ever just look at the fire or look at a candle flame, you notice that it's mesmerizing. Imagine if people could not experience fire. It's almost impossible to describe what it, what it looks like, how it moves. The other interesting aspect of fire is that it's not really a noun. It's an event. It's a chemical process of combustion. And photosynthesis is the conversion of sunlight energy into chemical bonds in the plants and trees. So when we have a bonfire, it's actually the reversal of that process happening very quickly. So I said that Uh, Fire would have been identified in the sky, in the sun, in the lightning, and in the lava. And interestingly, these become some of the first deities. You have Zeus, who is the god of lightning. In Roman mythology, you have Vulcan. Vulcan was the god of fire, and that's where we get the word volcano. Vulcan was more of the destructive power of fire, and in the Last year so we've had all these widespread fires that have destroyed so much of our wilderness and destroyed homes and displaced families all over the world. Of course in the west coast in California and Colorado and Oregon and in Australia last year and then there was the widespread burning of the Amazon rainforest. But this is actually not really that new in the modern era. In 1987, there was the Black Dragon fire of China and Russia that burned more than 20 acres. I think that's the largest fire in modern human history. And then there's stories of fires uh, like the the Great Chicago Fire. Supposedly, there was also a fire just further north in Wisconsin around that time that was even more widespread and caused more damage, but it didn't get quite the publicity. So you have Vulcan, you have Zeus. In India, there's a god of fire known as Agni. Agni is where we derive words like ignite. And Agni uh, has a wife. The wife's name is Swaha. And Swaha means oblation or offering. So you could think of Swaha as the fuel, like uh, the oxygen she's subtle, she's feminine, the fire is masculine in that mythology. But those who worship fire in India make an offering in a fire ceremony and they pour either oil or ghee onto the fire and every time it's offered they actually say swaha, which is uh, connotating the, the marriage of the masculine and feminine, or the dance of yin and yang, of purusha and prakruti in Hindu mythology, which meant the manifest and the unmanifest. Because you see, the flame is only the the visible part of the fire. There is combustion happening even before you can see it. So fires also become the spiritual symbol of our life, meaning that the, the physical body is the the manifestation of that fire. Also, there is a mythology of Prometheus stealing fire from Zeus and the gods and delivering it to human beings. And the the moral of that story is that this fire is the spark of life and it exists beyond this realm. So like I'm saying, the flame of life is only the manifest. And then there's this subtle unmanifest. So in Eastern traditions, spiritual traditions, there is a fire in each of the major energy centers of the body, known as chakras. In the bottom, you have the fire of the south, and these fires get more and more subtle until you get to the third eye. And the fire there is Agni himself, this ancient god of fire. The cranium, the skull, is the inner cave. Above that, you have the top chakra, the Sahasrara chakra. It's an infinite fire. That's where the fire returns back to its source. But in, in, but before there, you come to this cave in meditation. And other mystics like Zarathustra found this fire within through meditation and Taught it to his followers who became known as Zoroastrians. That's one of the oldest religions from ancient Persia. And their main ritual is the preserving of fire. And they started a ceremonial fire in a temple. Basically, it was symbolic of what Zoroaster was explaining to them, or had experienced the divine fire within. But it has become more of a a ritual, and, and in some cases, people do it without even knowing about the inner fire. But still, they preserved that fire for centuries until Islam spread throughout the region in the Middle Ages, and then Zoroastrianism started to decline. And those people were strongly pressured to convert or persecuted. And so, most of them migrated, and the surviving members of the religion found sanctuary in western india in gujarat and today the majority of the existing zoroastrians is about a hundred thousand people and most of them reside in the state of gujarat where they have preserved the same fire since their migration in the middle ages till today for over a thousand years there was another period of islamic rule in india that existed until the British rule and in that time the fire went underground and they hid it sometimes for over a decade uh, at a stretch until they could bring the fire back out again. But I find this story fascinating because it's sort of like our journey in life and I said fire is an event, not a, not a noun. And our life isn't really a noun, it's an event, it's a process and at times there's more darkness in the outer world And we have to go within. So you could say maybe right now, with the pandemic and this dark winter approaching, it's a time of outer darkness. And we need to then go inward. This is a time of introspection, where we can kindle the inner fire. And in Christianity, there's the symbol of the candle or the lamp, which we light. St. Francis said, All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. It's important to remember at this time when it feels like there's so much uncertainty and the future might seem hopeless for the time being but if we turn within we can see that that inner light and give that light to others especially when there's darkness everywhere so if the last thing I want I want to share with you is that this fire is one of five elements in Eastern philosophy in Taoist philosophy Greek philosophy you have the most uh, manifest element of the earth. Then it gets subtler as you move back to the source. Then water. Water is shapeless, it can change depending on what container it's held in. And then fire is even more subtle than water. Fire has become spiritual because it goes up. Gravity can't pull it down like it can with water. So it's the symbol of illumination. But fire, has that destructive potential. So if we think about this fire symbolically for our spiritual life, we want to be mindful of its destructive side and in terms of emotion that could be anger, lust, or greed. The way I conceptualize this is to think of the way I drew fire as a kid. There'd be like red and orange in the outer part and then more yellow or gold inside so that red is a symbol of passion the gold the inner part is the the purer aspect of the fire the wisdom or illumination and light and then of course the fire of love and then as you ascend subtler than fire you have air which is the fuel of the fire and then space. These elements are represented in the chakras as well. Earth is in the bottom center, water is in the sexual center, fire is thought to be in the navel. And in different Vedas of India, or in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, I am living inside of the stomach of every human being and I am the combustion, the process of combustion of food. So in uh, some sects of Hinduism, when a person is eating, they actually consider it to be a fire ceremony. And taking each piece of food, they mentally chant Swaha, which means the marriage of divine masculine, divine feminine, or the manifest and unmanifest. Or just thinking of it as an offering to the divine, that you have food, it's sustaining life in the body also the fire in the the head where Agni resides that offering is made through the oblation of breathing the oxygen coming in through the nose sustains the fire in the body and if we stop breathing within minutes the light goes out in the human body and the spark goes on to the source so with every breath we can mentally think of this offering to the self to the soul in meditation it's simply tuning out everything else and tuning in to the fire ceremony going on that's sustaining life in the body and if we think of this body as a lamp or a candle the wax or the oil is always declining and this fire will be extinguished in one of two ways either it will run its course we'll live our full life Or some accident, like a strong wind, blows the flame out. So at any moment, the fire can go out, the manifest fire. And because of that, it's worth being mindful of what really matters in life and knowing that we can go at any time. I'm about to get another car because the life of my car is coming to an end. And I notice that I feel an attachment for it. Fear of the unknown isn't what we think it is. It's really fear of losing the known. I've been with that car for a while, and I know it's just a car, it's just parts, but it, but there's still an emotional attachment. Similarly, we've lived in this body for so long, so naturally we're attached to driving this car. But like I said, we have to go at any time, and meditation is the practice, the preparation for that moment so that we can have a peaceful exit of this fire and return it to the source we have cremation as a funeral ceremony in a lot of cultures and I think part of that fire isn't just for people grieving to honor their lost loved one but some cultures believe it's actually for the spirit of that, that embodied soul to actually see okay it's over you can move on you don't have to hang around here and then the other thing I wanted to say is when people ask me about why I think relationships don't last like most relationships don't last or why marriages don't last I think it has to do with the way the fire of the love burns I think we're kind of culturally conditioned to expect there to be this really big spark and for that to exist the whole time and people throw all the fuel on the fire like right out the gate and then the fire is finished but if you're looking for something that's more sustainable it needs to burn more like coal or like embers i mean that requires that that fits into a person's values the way they want to to love unconditionally and feel the warmth of friendship and compassion and unconditional care what are you offering into the fire of the relationship you know i think we set all these things and feel like okay now the fire will will burn on its own forever if there's not another dream there's not another oblation the one last thing that keeps running in my head is om Namah shivaya which is you know burn for me anything that's not but is the interpretation god or true or right yeah it's so if shiva in that mantra shiva's a, a god as well but uh, if you take the I out of shiva you have shava and you all know whether you know this or not you know shavasana shavasana is corpse pose so shiva is the the spark the fire the activating principle of the body without the e the eye or the chi you just have shava you just have inert earth but with the soul with the fire and the earth you have shiva so shiva is a god mythologically but shiva is also the soul the fire soul fire